0: You're listening to the Bible Teachings of Reality Church
1: Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com.
0: Hebreos 1.1 Dios, habiendo hablado hace mucho tiempo, en muchas ocasiones, y de muchas maneras, a los padres por los profetas. En estos últimos días, Nos ha hablado por su Hijo, a quien constituyó heredero de todas las cosas, por medio de quien hizo también el universo. Él es el resplandor de su gloria y la expresión exacta de su naturaleza y sostiene todas las cosas por la palabra de su poder. Después de llevar a cabo la purificación de los pecados, el Hijo se sentó And the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the word of the Lord.
1: So I want to begin by a question. Uh, What comes into your mind when you think about God? God. And I don't want you to speed past that question, because as A. W. Tozer once put it, what comes into your mind is the most. When what comes into your mind when you think about God, is the most important thing about you. So, what do you imagine? What do you think? What do you see? What are you hearing? What are you envisioning when you think about God? For thousands and thousands and thousands of years, people have been trying to imagine who or what is behind the veil, behind the mystery of life. In fact, almost every culture, every society in history has had their various ways that they have sought to make sense of God and sought to make sense of the spiritual and divine realm. And as people throughout history have peered into the mystery, they've dreamed up all kinds of images and characters and narratives to try to explain it. Creation myths and the gods and the goddesses and mother spirits and all sorts of figures. If you study literature, if you study art, even music throughout history, you will see these different expressions of the gods and divine powers and paradise and angels and spirits and even goblins and so forth. And really the question beneath all of it is this. If there is a God behind all of this, what is he like? What is God like Well, Hebrews just told us, he is like Jesus. In fact, Michael Reeves would put it this way, there is no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus. There's an account in the Gospel of John, it's the night before Jesus' crucifixion, he's with his disciples, that at that point he had been with for years, but they still don't get it. They still don't comprehend just who this Jesus is, just like many of us who've been walking with the Lord for years, and we love Jesus, and we've been trying to obey Jesus all along. But a lot of us, we still don't grasp the magnitude of who this Jesus is. The scene in John is when he says these famous words, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the disciples are stunned, and, and Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. This is all that we ask. Just show us the Father then. And Jesus said to him, but have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father So we're continuing our series in the letter of Hebrews, slowly, I warned you about that. And last week we looked at part one of this sort of opening paragraph, looking at the the fact that Jesus is the word of God, Jesus is the son of God, Jesus is the heir of all things and it is through Jesus all things were created. Today we're gonna continue in this list of descriptions beginning first if you're taking notes with this. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. That's who Jesus is. Now, in the Old Testament, I mean, that word glory has rich biblical meaning. In the Old Testament, glory, the glory of the Lord was the visible expression of God's presence among his people. Tangible, visible ways that the invisible God was made manifest. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees the, the train of his robe filling the temple with glory. Or we read in Exodus, or actually, yeah, in Exodus, that there's a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. Later on in in the, the account to the kings and the chronicles, we read of the smoke that filled the temple, the glory of God that was so dense that the ministers couldn't even stand and minister. I mean, it was just that thick. In Exodus 33 and 34, Moses asks the Lord, please show me your glory. God, I want to see you. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord and all of my attributes. But he says to Moses, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. So what he he does is he hides Moses in the cleft of the rock. He covers Moses with his hand and he allows him to see his backside as he passes before him and proclaims his name. And even just this brief exposure to the glory of God causes Moses' face to what? Shine. All these experiences of God's glory were very real, but they were partial they were fragmented. They were sort of portioned out because humanity could not handle a full experience of God's glory, not in their current sinful state. But we're told here that the glory of God has been made manifest fully in Jesus. So Moses' face reflected the glory, but Jesus alone radiates That glory. So the author of Hebrews is telling us something important about Jesus, but he's also putting Moses, which he's going to get around to in chapter 3, he's putting Moses into his place. Moses, big shot. Moses, important guy. But guess what? He only reflected the glory. Jesus alone radiates that glory. So picture in your mind a magnifying glass. I remember um, having a magnifying glass as a little boy. I've had to repent of the many senseless bug murders that I committed over the years. So what does a magnifying glass when you take a uh, magnifying glass do when you take it outside? What it does is if you hold it right, it concentrates all of the rays of the sun into one fierce hot beam of light. And this is the picture that Hebrews is giving us. Jesus Christ gathers all of the brilliance of the glory and the radiance of God in heaven into one single beam of light, into one person named Jesus. And what that means then is that all other forms of glory pale in comparison to this Jesus. Anything shiny, anything sleek, anything dazzling, anything new that we become so easily enamored by will never compare to the glory that is found distinctly in Jesus Christ. Nothing in your life can or will ever outshine the brilliance of Jesus. The Apostle Paul would put it in 2 Corinthians, for God has said, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of God of Jesus Christ. He's the radiance of God's glory. Secondly, Jesus is the exact representation of God. Man, those slides are on top of it today. It was before I even turned. So there are little features that my children have inherited from me. One of my children inherited my eyes. My wife describes them as slightly sad eyes. They're always just a little bit turned down. Are you sad? No, that's my face. (laughs) Um, A couple of my children inherited my nose. Um, All of my children inherited stubbornness from their mother. (laughs) Children reflect their parents in so many ways, but what is unique here about this description is that Jesus is the precise expression of God. Now, I want to be careful to make sure that we are being Trinitarian in our theology, The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit are one God, and yet they are three distinct persons. The divinity of the Father, the divinity of the Son, the divinity of the Spirit is one, the glory equal, their majesty co eternal. Athanasius helped me with that language. And yet they are not three gods, there's one God. And so, what I'm not saying is that Jesus being the exact impression of God means that they sort of blend together, or that somehow Jesus is just like a distinct mode of God. No, Jesus is distinctly the Son, and God here is being described as distinctly the Father. But Jesus is the way that God is made known, He perfectly represents the character and the nature of God. The word here for impression in the original language, which is Greek, is the word character. And I'm not translating it, it's actually in Greek, it's character. And in the ancient Greek world, what would happen was an accurate impression of a figure would be stamped onto a coin, which would often bear the image of an emperor, and then that coin would be spread throughout the empire. It's a reflection of the emperor. It's little image bearers, if you will, that spread throughout the kingdom that represent the one king. This is what's being said about Jesus. So where humanity failed as in a role as image bearers, Jesus does it perfectly. It also can mean a signet ring. You remember, well, you don't remember, but if you've studied this or you've maybe seen it in movies, there are are people that would write a letter or whatever and they would turn the envelope over and they'd pour like hot wax and then they would press the, the signet ring and you know what I'm talking about? And that would be the way that the recipient of the letter would understand that this wasn't just written by anyone, this was written by the person who distinctly holds the signet ring. It's, it's from this one figure. So we understand it's the right sender. This is Jesus. So Jesus is the way that the world may see God clearly. And Jesus is the way that the world may recognize the character of God perfectly. When theologian put it this way, he is the open heart of God and the very love and life of God poured out to redeem humanity, the mighty hand of God stretched out to heal and save sinners. This is Jesus. Now, many people today are going to try to find God in various places. They're gonna to try to see him in various places. And I still hear this to, the, to this day. Well, you know, I really see God in nature. Um, so I'm gonna go on a hike. Or I really connect with God in this way. Or I really like to think about God in, in these terms. Some people search the stars for the divine. Some people will search their horoscopes for some sort of message beyond the veil. Uh, Currently, there is a big uprising in New Age approaches like crystals and sage and manifesting and shamans, which seems to be a distinctly sort of mid-30s white woman trap right now. I'm just going to be honest. Which, by the way, probably you are making spiritual connections to the demonic. So this, was, this is a little off script. Throw away the sage. You don't need a crystals You ain't manifesting anything, and you don't need a shaman. You got the high priest, Jesus Christ, okay? Like, don't mess with that stuff. There may be hints of God in a lot of places. There are fingerprints in his creation everywhere. But it's in Jesus that we see and we hear God clearly, and it's through Jesus that we relate to God rightly. Do not settle for distorted. Do not settle for pixelated or blurred or even perverted images of God when the exact impression is available to you in the person of Jesus Christ. Are we clear on this point? Amen. Thirdly, I went there on the sage, guys. I went there on the sage Jesus is the sustainer of the universe. There's a lot of S's in that sentence. Jesus is the sustainer of the universe. This is, again, a way that the author is telling us that Jesus is God. And that statement right there, I mean, it harkens back to so many passages, particularly in the Psalms, where God is described as the one that is upholding everyone. God is the one that won't let me slip. God is the one that upholds my life. And the author of Hebrews says, yeah, that's Jesus. So he takes all the attributes of God that we see in the Old Testament and shows us that they apply to Christ. Verse three, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, I for one do not see science and faith being opposed to each other. It's kind of a sad thing that that is the narrative in evangelical Christianity. I do not believe science and faith are opposed to each other. And in a lot of ways, science helps us see the intricate and the very beautiful details of the world around us that God has created. But in a very real way, science still grapples with terms and ideas that can't fully be explained. I love the way that an old novelist put it. He said, water is H2O, hydrogen two parts, oxygen one. But there's also a third thing that makes it water, and nobody knows what that is. Do you? Gravity, for instance. The force by which a planet or other celestial bodies draw something towards the center. Isn't that fascinating? That we are being held to a rock that is floating in space right now. Right now, but how? How is it the right amount that it doesn't crush us and that we don't float away? How is it just the right amount that over the years your skin begins to just slightly slag and your arms uh, droop and your arms kinda do that one thing right there? How is it like just the like, perfect amount that gravity's having its way but we just don't float away and we're not crushed to the ground? How do we live in a world that's conducive to life? That we're able to breathe here. That we're able to see that we're not floating away. See, we have words for really important things like gravity and fusion and conception and inertia and energy, but we can't quite explain the source behind all of it. Hebrews 1 tells us that it is the Son of God that is upholding, the entire universe. The world is not being upheld by the laws of nature. The laws of nature help us to understand it, but the world is not being upheld by the laws of nature. It is being sustained by the personal and the powerful work of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1 describes Jesus as holding all things together. Everything is held together in Jesus. So think about this. If Jesus were to let his hands off the reins for just a split second, we would absolutely fall apart. We would disintegrate. You think your life is falling apart right now? You have no idea how gracious and involved God's hand is in your life right now. You think everything is lost and nothing is hopeful and everything's falling apart. And yet here we are, whether we acknowledge him or not, holding our entire life intact. The good news is that for those who trust in Christ, which is another way of maybe saying those who've placed their life in his hands, is that the same hands that keep planets in orbit right now are holding you. Not even holding you loosely, clinging to you. Jesus would say, no one snatches them out of my hands. Keeping you in the love of God. Not letting you spin off into oblivion, spiritually and practically. And if he's capable of juggling everything that is happening in the universe right now, then he is more than capable of supporting you. More than capable. If only we could apply what we claim to believe about Jesus to our everyday lives. If only we would allow this understanding, Jesus upholds the entire universe. If we would allow that to come to bear on our fears and our anxieties about the future and our need to control everything in our life if only we lived out what we truly believe to be true about Jesus. What is our only comfort in life and in death? It's that we're not our own, but we belong, body and soul, both in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Let this sink in. You are in good hands. You're in faithful hands. And we're told that it's all by the word of his power. You know what this means? It means that God doesn't just speak at us. There are a lot of people talking at us today. (laughs) I'm kind of doing that to you right now. (laughs) And see the irony in that statement. There's a lot of voices talking at us, telling us what to do and what not to do. But here we're told that he speaks sustaining power over us and within us. This voice isn't just saying do this and don't do that. This voice is reviving us. This voice is upholding us. This voice is enabling us to respond and to live faithfully for his glory. Let's look finally that Jesus is the crucified and risen king. So there are a number of ways that the Bible describes sin. Maybe you're new here today or you're new to church and you heard that word a lot earlier in our confession. You're like, or in, in one of our songs, like, what does that even mean? Well, the Bible, there's, in the Bible, there's a lot of ways to describe sin. And, and the way that it distorts our lives and brings separation between us and God. But one of the ways that sin is described is as impurity. Sin causes a stain. It it taints. It creates uncleanness, which in religious terms is a big deal because it means it separates us from a holy God and it separates us from the worshiping community. It puts us on the outside. When the prophet Isaiah caught a glimpse of God in his glory, his response was this, Isaiah 6, woe is me for I am lost for I am a man of what? unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So in the presence of a holy, pure, undefiled God, we realize, oh my gosh, I'm unclean. Psalm 24 says this, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? In other words, who's going to be in his presence? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Well, that poses a dilemma, doesn't it? Because who among us has perfectly clean hands? And who among us has a perfectly pure heart? Or Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, one of the Beatitudes, he says this, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So the stakes are high here. In order to see God, Your heart has to be pure. Well, how does that work? I find it interesting, of all the descriptions of sin, I think this is the one that people can associate with maybe the the most, with the easiest, despite your religious affiliation. It doesn't take temples or priests or sacrifices or anything uniquely religious to experience the feeling of uncleanness. We have various ways of describing that. Maybe you see something or you hear something and you're like, oh, I feel icky. And that may be a trivial example, but we have maybe more extreme examples where we see something, experience something, feel something where we absolutely feel filthy. Like a person who maybe makes a really serious mistake with someone the night before and they find themselves scrubbing a little extra in the shower the next day. A psychologist named Stanley Rockman conducted a study among those who experienced a sense of inter, or inner dirtiness and how most of these people turned towards external cleanliness in order to cope with what was going on inside. And in a lot of ways we do this. Here's a few examples. Someone who is experiencing their life getting completely out of control will find things that they can control. They'll go on a cleaning rampage. To organize a closet. We even say things like, I'm purging right now, I'm purifying. Perhaps someone's emotions are in conflict within and they've got a lot of disorder with their thoughts and their feelings, so they find things in their external that they can bring into order. What happens? They become bossy. Or they become really controlling in the relationships. Or someone may have a deep sense of shame or embarrassment about an element of their body, or maybe someone said something to you 10, 15, 20, 50 years ago about your body that is now embedded within, and so you try everything you can do on the external to prove them wrong. I've gotta be the most beautiful. I have gotta be the most well put together. I have gotta be the most in shape now. They're all ways, in a sense, of practicing ritual cleanliness. Ways to make ourselves clean. Ways to try to remove The stain within that we're identifying. But here's the deal. It's just simply not enough. And this verse says it so quickly that it's easy to gloss over. But look with me again in verse three. After making purification for sins. So what this says is that Jesus made purification for sins. I think we as evangelicals sort of just assume upon that statement. We sing the song, what can make me... White again or pure as snow. I'm mixing up the words. But you know, what can cleanse me? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He's purified me from my sins. But for the Hebrew eater, that little, almost to us, like throwaway statement would have hit them like a ton of bricks. Because what that means is that all of the various sacrifices and all of the work of the priests and all of the rituals and all the ceremonial cleansing all of the exclusion from worship because you're unclean for this reason or that reason has just all at one time become obsolete, gone. And now it's been replaced by the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus. It's, it's good. So Jesus' sacrifice, are you guys still with me here? So Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is what cleanses us from sin for those who trust in him. For, it means our past sins, it means our present sins, and it even means our future sins are cleansed. We have been purified. He took upon himself the defilement. He took upon himself all of our uncleanness, and in exchange, he gave to us his purity. He gave to us his righteousness with a kind of purity that we can't improve upon. I think that that is part of the reason Hebrews is being written. You can't improve upon what Jesus has already done. Why are you going back to the things that can't do this for you? And Christian, 2,000 years later, we've got those things too. Why do you keep reverting? If you are a Christian, you have received a record of righteousness, a cleanness that cannot be tainted and cannot be defiled. Not only have you been washed, this is going old school. You've been Scotch-Guarded. I remember Scotch-Guard, Mom. Scotch-Guard it. The stains can't stick to you. So why the author is suggesting would you turn to anything or anyone else to make you whole? Why would you revert back to those ceremonial cleansing rituals? Because it's only through abiding in Jesus that you can be made pure. Verse three again, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down at the right hand of majesty. This is a picture of power. This is a picture of triumph, but this is also a picture of finality. You stand when you work and you sit down when it's done. The priests, were told, stood in the temple ministering day after day after day. Why? Because sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, it couldn't take away sin. So there the priests are standing, but the crucified and risen Jesus is seated. Why? Because the work he completed is finished. There's nothing to add to it. And if Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, why are you standing trying to cleanse yourself? Why are you working to become something in God's presence? Rest. It's finished. Cleansed. Jesus who was humiliated and brought low on earth has been exalted and enthroned in heaven. This is the paradox that we must see. Blood does not stain, it cleanses. Death is not defeat, it's victory. Suffering is not something to be embarrassed of or ashamed of. It's how the glory of God is revealed. The author of Hebrews wants to encourage us with this picture. Remember, he's writing to first century Jewish Christians who are at this very moment considering giving up on faith in Christ and walking away from their faith in Jesus because of the affliction that they're facing, because of the suffering that they are facing for the name of Jesus. And the application is this that for the believer who looks to their life and looks to the world and only sees chaos and only sees disorder and feels like in this very moment, Christianity is losing. Remember the way of Jesus who was brought low, who suffered tremendously, who appeared to have lost and everyone thought he had. And yet God raised him up in victory. And those who trust in him will be raised up with him as well. You don't follow a defeated, Historical figure, you follow a risen and ascended king. And right now, as we speak, he is seated on the throne. He is exalted in glory. I get this image every time I'm preaching. You don't get to see it, but I see the exalted Christ speaking over me as I speak to you, who is seated on the throne, alive and well, ruling and reigning and not one detail in your life is outside of his control, outside of his sovereign care. He is working all things for your good and his glory. He's seated. He's seated. I want to close with a prayer from an old prayer book called The Valley of Vision. It's got some V's and thou's and arts. so hang tight with me. Thou, who is man of sorrows, was crowned with thorns, art now as Lord of life, wreathed with glory. Once, no shame more deep than thine, no agony more bitter, no death more cruel. Now, no exaltation more high, no life more glorious, no advocate more effective. What more could be done than thou hast done Thy life, thy death is my life. Thy resurrection, my peace. Thy ascension, my hope. Thy prayers, my comfort. What more could be done? And the answer is nothing. And what's our response? We trust him with everything because Jesus truly is better. Amen? Father, we.